0: Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Just a reminder, CoinDesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
1: Hello, hello. It is I, your weekly host of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0, Christine Kim. Usually, now is about the time where Ben, my other co-host, jumps in to say hello. But alas, he is out this week for a well-deserved holiday. In lieu of Ben, I'm pleased to welcome a special first-time guest to our show, community manager, protocol support, cat-herder extraordinaire, Tim Vigo from the Ethereum Foundation. Hi, Tim.
2: Christine, thanks for having me.
1: It's great to have you on the show. You wear many different hats at the Ethereum Foundation. And from my time as an Ethereum reporter, I know that titles at EF don't really mean anything. And in fact, usually it's like the least helpful detail about someone employed at the EF to clarify what they do. So for context, because we're going to be talking about a number of different topics from markets to tech, can you give a few sentences on what your main role and responsibilities are at the EF?
2: Sure. Um, so the main thing I do is I run what we call the all devs meetings. These meetings are biweekly where all of the different teams working on the Ethereum protocol get together and discuss changes to the protocol and anything related to kind of the, the consensus layer of Ethereum. So I run those meetings as part of doing that. I'm obviously very involved in the different EIPs, all the kind of aspects of protocol development. And another part of my job is communicating the changes to Ethereum, the Ethereum roadmap and whatnot uh, to the broader community.
1: Gotcha. Yes. We want to get into some of those important changes to the development roadmap on Ethereum a little bit later in the show. But first, I want to do a quick market update. So Tim, just for context, I usually gather three to four news highlights from the week that I think are notable in terms of potential impact on ETH trading and price. Some of these you're going to have already heard of, some of these probably not. So I'm going to want your on-the-spot reaction to some of this news. Are you ready? Sure. So first up, this seems to be the first week since the end of March that ETH price has posted a loss. In the last 24 hours, prices were down 9%. And at the time of recording for this show, ETH prices trend at roughly $3,300. But it's not only ETH that's suffering this week. BTC, Bitcoin is also down 9% in the past 24 hours, while a bunch of smaller market cap coins, Polygon's Matic token, Cardano's ADA token, the Cosmos Atom token, all of these altcoins are up in the green, while ETH and BTC seem to be down. So it seems like the rise of the altcoins. Tim, any inklings on this strange activity that we're seeing?
2: I don't follow it too closely outside of ETH and Bitcoin, but I think it's it happens pretty frequently. Where well, like Bitcoin will go up first, and you know people move, uh, rotate their profits into ETH, and then ETH goes up, and then you know people rotate their profits even farther down the risk spectrum. So they'll, they'll go into a bunch of altcoins. That would be my rough read. But yeah, definitely not financial advice and don't invest based on this.
1: It's true. You have to be careful with these altcoins. You don't know how long they're going to last. And speaking of altcoins, another news item that I wanted to flag was the founder of Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin, made headlines this past week for donating his Shiba Inu coins to charity. He burned some of these Shiba Inu coins and he also locked some of them up for liquidity on the decentralized exchange Uniswap. And honestly, when I first heard this news, I was like, who cares what Buterin does with his tokens? But lo and behold, this did make ripple effects in not only the the community, but also the markets. And it's mainly because of just the sheer dollar value and amount that was in Buterin's wallet for the Shuba Inu coins were out of this world. I keep saying Buterin, but maybe I should say Vitalik. I don't know if we're on a first name basis. Anyways, I'm gonna say his full name now. So Vitalik Buterin, he, Usually, sometimes when tokens get created on Ethereum, developers just airdrop. They dump a bunch of their tokens without, you know, Vitalik Buterin's permission or not. They just dump a lot of tokens into his Ethereum account. And the way that Ethereum works, you can't. There's no protocol against people doing this. So trillions of Shiba Inu tokens were, were dumped into his account, and Buterin gave away 50 trillion Shiba Inu coins which was worth around $1.2 billion to an India COVID relief fund. 410 trillion Shiba Inu tokens worth $6.7 billion was burned. These are mind-boggling numbers for an altcoin. And outside of these dollar amounts, of course, Buterin's actions also sparked a whole new conversation around crypto philanthropy. How do you do it? How do you make it impactful? So lots of news headlines around that. I'm not quite interested still in this conversation around crypto philanthropy and whatnot, but Tim, what were your thoughts on those news headlines?
2: Yeah, so I guess there's like two main things. Uh, the first is obviously it seems, you know, people airdrop coins to Vitalik as kind of like a marketing uh, gimmick because people know Vitalik's address and and they'll go see, you know, which coins are there and they might buy a certain coin, you know, based on Vitalik owning it. Uh, even though, like you said, Vitalik never kind of agreed to own that anybody can, can send coins to his wallet. And the Inu, the Shiba Inu one was like a bit weird. I I didn't look at it too much, but like they mentioned that as some types of burn, which is very odd because if you want to usually burn coins on Ethereum, you know, you can send them to an address that you can know that nobody has the key for. Like people will send it to the zero address on Ethereum. So if you look at, you know, 0x0000 on Etherscan, you can see people will burn tokens there. And because no one has a private key for that address, you, you know that they're burnt. So Shiba Inu decided to send up the Vitalik kind of thinking he would not sell them. I, I don't understand the rationale there. I mean, they were Vitalik's coins and, and he decided to sell them and give them to charity. Uh, I think one big, this is kind of the second thing, is the numbers are pretty misleading because the first coin he sold on Uniswap, he basically sold his entire balance. I'm not sure if that was Shiba Inu or another one, there was like four or five different dog coins. But even though his wallet said he had, you know, $6 billion of that coin. When he sold it on Uniswap, because there's so little liquidity, I think he got 55 million out of it. It's not a trivial amount, right? Like it's still $55 million, but it is like hundred X less than, than what the wallet said. And he sent those to, to GiveWell. So I think, you know, he wanted to sell the coins, uh, both as a way to give money to charity and, and probably to like deter people from using like his address as a, a sort of weird burning mechanism. And and I think towards the end, he sent some of the coins directly to the charities themselves. So maybe they wouldn't necessarily dump on the market right now. But It's worth noting those market caps are like extremely inflated. And, you know, the one time he did try to sell most of the coins, he got a hundred X less than what coins were said to be worth. So
1: that's a really good point. Yeah. And when I say Shiba Inu coins, please, everyone who's listening, do not mistake that for Dogecoin. That is a different cryptocurrency out there. Dogecoin is not the same as the Shiba Inu coins that we're talking about here for this news headline. And it is also important to note that the kind of tokens that you see in Vitalik's labeled Ethereum account are not endorsements for any of those projects at all. And this is one of the actions in which one of the news headlines that I think really reflect the fact that people shouldn't take what's in his wallet, the tokens that he's holding as any sort of endorsement for these projects. So the last news item that I want to do in this market section of our show is not so much about the ETH markets, but it's more about the NFT markets. The company behind the highest volume NFT platform is reportedly being sued for selling their NFTs as unregistered securities. So Dapper Labs is the company behind the blockchain-based digital collectibles platform, NBA Top Shots. And NBA Top Shots sells basketball game video highlights that users can then own and trade through the blockchain. These video assets are securities according to a lawsuit filed by a private citizen last Wednesday to the Supreme Court of the State of New York, because the value of these tokens increases with the success of the project. I thought this was a really groundbreaking lawsuit because everybody had these kind of questions around, are NFT securities or not? How are they gonna be regulated? Before this lawsuit came into existence, it was right when NFTs were booming. These were some of the legal questions around their trade. And now I think, you know, depending on how the case goes, it'll have big ramifications for the NFT industry as a whole. Tim, would you agree with that? Do you think that this is a significant development?
2: I'm not a lawyer. So please again, not, not legal advice. I've only like skimmed the kind of lawsuit that you mentioned. And one thing that's kind of interested in it is the person mentions that they haven't been able to like withdraw their funds from Top Shots like via the Flow platform. And it's like a criticism I've seen in the past before too. Never use it myself. So, you know, I, I'm not sure how widespread or rare this is. And that seems to be kind of the root of, you know what's kind of causing the person to be upset. And you know, I think this is something where it really matters which platform you use for these things. And we were just talking about earlier on Ethereum, nobody can kind of stop you from getting your funds or from interacting with your own wallet. And you know, that's nice for a lot of reasons. You know, if platforms like Flow offer like a more, I guess, centralized experience that gives them a lot of advantages, but it also exposes people who use Flow to kind of the whims of that platform. If flows users are unhappy with how the platform is owned, then I guess at some point they will be suing for one reason or another.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that kind of intersection between how these lawsuits play out with a centralized service built on top of a decentralized platform. And like what is actually a decentralized application and service and what is more centralized because you can have that whole broad range on top of the Ethereum blockchain, which is completely decentralized there's also gradients there that we can get into. That was hot takes on the spot, quick reaction to all these market news items. I love doing it to Ben because very similar to you, he's like, I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) I'm not a trader, but still very nice to get your thoughts and opinions on that. We're going to move on now in the show to talking about things that are a little bit more up your alley. First, let's do the tech update. And this week I want to talk about Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559 the proposed fee market change to Ethereum that will make predicting transaction fees on Ethereum, which is notoriously difficult to do, it'll make deciding what your transaction fees should be, calculating them a whole lot easier. But one of the downsides of EIP-1559 is also that it's going to reduce miner rewards. Miners, they get rewards for the kind of computational energy that they input into the network. They get a certain amount of rewards by block, so two ETH per block, but they also make a lot of money from transaction fees. The majority of transaction fees will now be burned. They won't be going to minor rewards. Given this kind of debate that has been ongoing for many years now actually on the Ethereum, through the Ethereum community, how confident are you, Tim, And how decided is it as a community that EIP-1559 is actually going to get activated on Ethereum in July?
2: Yeah. So the EIP-1559 is included in the next hard fork on Ethereum. So that's kind of final. Unless like with any other EIP or, or feature, we find some security issue with it. You know, like obviously if even the day before it's supposed to go live, we find some critical bug in it. Uh, We will not deploy it. Like the number one priority is always keeping the the network secure. But, you know, assuming there's no unexpected issue, and we're obviously testing it pretty thoroughly in the meantime, uh, it will be deployed in the next hard fork. We don't have a specific date for it yet. We're aiming for mid July. Because it is such a big change, though, we want to see it go well on the test nets before we set a specific date for mainnet. Uh, So the first test net is set to fork on June 9th. So about a month, less, little less than a month from now, and assuming everything goes smoothly there, then we'll set a, a specific date for mainnet. You know that is final. You did mention, you know, miners are, are not happy with it. it. It cuts their fees and whatnot. It's true. Like 1559 will burn part of the fees. It doesn't burn the entirety of the fees. That's something that's worth noting. The f- transaction fee basically gets broken down into two components after 1559. Uh, One which we call basically the base fee, which is the minimum fee your transaction needs to pay to be included in the protocol. And having this base fee is what provides kind of the better UX with better guarantees around how you should set your gas price and how quickly your transaction will be included. But there's another part to the transaction fee called the tip, and that part will still go to the miner. Um, So it's expected that every transaction will provide kind of a small tip. And the reason for that is miners do have a cost of like running your transaction and of potentially having their block be uncalled if it has more transactions in it than if it's empty. So the tip basically compensates them for that risk. And the tip is also the way by which you can express transactions that are incredibly valuable. And this is something we've seen recently with the rise of MEV, where sometimes there's an arbitrage transaction or Yeah, a transaction you can front run on the network. People will pay incredibly high fees to have the transaction be included then. And they'll still be able to do that using the tip after 1559. And so miners will still keep kind of that share of the income. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see once it's deployed, what miner revenue looks like. And one last thing that's worth noting is you know, miner revenue is not only dependent on transaction fees, so price volatility of Ether obviously has a huge impact, and so does the hash rate. So if the price goes up, it becomes more profitable. If the price goes down, it becomes less profitable. But also if other miners join, it becomes less profitable for every existing miner and vice versa. If a lot of miners quit the network, then the remaining miners have less competition and it's more profitable for them.
0: Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With The Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com coindesk.
1: Do you expect a lot of Ethereum miners to quit in response to the activation of EIP 1559? Tell me about there have been campaigns and various community calls that you've organized in order to persuade and in order to get miners who originally were against the upgrade to be for it and to prevent kind of a a bigger community split than there needs to be what has the miner response been to a lot of those reasons that you you just gave
2: so i guess you know to start with the first part of your questions will miners kind of leave after 1559 you know the answer is maybe like if you're not profitable after 1559 it doesn't make sense for you to mine right like you know you should sell your mining rig and buy ether instead if you want to invest in the network so that's definitely something where we might see miners leaving there's a lot of studies you know that show that ethereum is basically has too much miners relative to its market cap. When you start comparing it to say Bitcoin, um, we pay you know, much more for network security. So even if we had you know, 10 20% of the miners leave after 1559 because they're not profitable, it won't put the network in any sort of security risk. And it's kind of a free market. It's like, you know, if it becomes too unprofitable, people will leave, but then as people leave, then it might create an opportunity for new entrants to come into space. One thing, I kind of keep rambling about this, but with regards to mining, it's really, really important to note that in the next 12 months and possibly you know, six to nine months, Ethereum will move away completely from mining. So if you are a miner, the biggest thing that should matter in your calculus is not necessarily the fees, but are you expecting to have a positive ROI in like the next six months? And if you're not, if you think if it takes you, you know, two years from now or a year and a half to break even to your, with your mining rig, like he will lose money because mining will just not be around in, in that period of time. So that's something I hopefully, if there's any people considering mining or debating whether they should start a miner that are listening, mining functionality of Ethereum will be basically shut down pretty soon. With regards to your second question, so, you know, can miners disrupt the transition and whatnot? I think this is really somewhere where the Ethereum community is incredibly valuable because you have, yes, miners who can decide to, you know, mine on a separate fork than the fork which has the 1559 upgrade. It's not quite as simple as that because there is the difficulty bomb as part of Ethereum. So if if miners wanted to basically have a a different fork than 1559, if they don't upgrade, their chain will eventually just freeze uh, because the difficulty will get too high. So they could still change the code, put out a new release and mine on that. The real challenge if they do that is they need to have the community recognize their kind of alternate chain as Ethereum. And we've talked with... You know, projects across wide range of parts of the Ethereum ecosystem, whether the dApps built on the network, infrastructure, the e 2 client teams, all of those teams are in favor of 1559. And so when the upgrade comes, they will all kind of signal like this is the chain that we think is Ethereum. And this is really, really important because if you look at things like DeFi, for example, all of DeFi relies on price oracles that need a way to gauge you know, what the price of ETH is. And they all kind of need to agree on what asset are they talking about? For example, today, you don't see half of DeFi using the price of Ethereum Classic as the price of ETH. They all kind of agree that the ETH ticker is what they use. And after the 1559 fork, you'll be in a similar spot where, for example, all these oracles need to decide, well, what are we calling Ethereum and pointing to? Folks that have you know, projects with off-chain assets, you know USDC is a, is a good example of that they need to say, well, which chain holds your USDC balance? Because obviously their bank account does not fork into. If there's a fork, even the ETH2 chain, which tracks the deposits on ETH1, they need to say, well, which deposit contract gives you a right to deposits on the ETH2 chain? And again, so far, all the teams we've spoken to would, would follow the 1559 chain. It's not impossible for miners to start their own fork and it's their right to if you know, they want to start a fork that separates from the network at that point. But every project I've spoken to in the Ethereum community has either been supportive or at worst neutral against 1559. I would be like extremely, extremely surprised if a large part of projects decided to just move away from Ethereum and kind of take on all the costs associated with that.
1: Yeah, that was actually a very similar argument to the rationale behind why people were saying with the growth of DeFi, with the importance of DeFi on Ethereum, Ethereum gets to the stage where it becomes unforkable because of the amount of value and the amount of interconnecting applications and DeFi services on top Ethereum, that if any certain services wanted to move to a different chain, um, wanted to create a different forked version of Ethereum, the number of users and value that won't transfer over, that won't actually be replicated on this new chain is a a huge concern for miners and for anybody who really wants to be a significant competitor to Ethereum's market cap and Ethereum's value. So I hear your point And I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned the ROI of miners in light of the upcoming Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. This entire show is about documenting and updating readers about how Ethereum's transition to proof of stake is working one of the natural questions that comes out of that is how does the fee model of EIP-1559 port over to a proof of stake environment? As I understand, validators are still going to have the same kind of difficulties with minor extractable value in that you know, being able to prioritize certain transactions above others will give them additional income. What are some of the expected impacts of EIP-1559 on Ethereum 2.0 and its proof of stake model?
2: Yeah. So I think you can basically swap miners for validators. So once we have the merge, Ethereum 2.0 validators are the ones in charge of building blocks. That means they are the ones who will receive tips from transactions as they build blocks and who will be able to extract MEV as they build blocks as well. What's interesting is it's kind of a much more distributed set where you know all the validators on the networks are eventually going to propose blocks, whereas the mining. Is, is a bit more centralized into a handful of entities. Those entities are mostly mining pools, which map to a lot of individual contributors. So it's not like it's all going into one, one specific entity's pockets. But yeah, validators will be in the same spot.
1: We could spend a lot of time talking deeper about EIP 1559 and miner extractable value, but I'm going to redirect people to flashbots and also helpful resources that Tim himself has written and that we're going to put in our show notes if you guys want to learn more. Uh, We're going to move on from the tech update section of this podcast shortly because I do want to drill down on some of the community updates. But before we move on completely, Tim, can you just briefly run down the other code changes that are bundled in with EIP 1559 for the London upgrade? It's the backwards incompatible Upgrade scheduled for for mid-July, as Tim said. Tim, what are some of the other code changes that are are bundled in with EIP 1559 that users can expect?
2: Of course, uh, there's basically five EIPs coming into London. The first is 1559, which we've discussed extensively. The second one is just a small addition to 1559. It's EIP 3198. All it does is exposes the base fee. So again, this minimum fee you need to pay uh, through an opcode. This is really useful if you're a smart contract that's generating transactions to know basically how much you should pay for them. So it, it just adds that information for smart contracts to use. The third EIP that's included, we kind of touched on this already as well, but is delaying the difficulty bomb. So as I mentioned earlier, Ethereum has this difficulty bomb, which makes mining exponentially harder. And a way to think about it is it's an exponential curve that's flat for you know, 90% of its life. And then goes up extremely quickly, kind of like a, a sideways L. This bomb is in the protocol or well, was in the protocol originally to force people to move to proof of stake so that mining would, would kind of end on the network. The proof of stake launch obviously took way longer than we thought. So we've pushed it back a few times in the, in the past. It was supposed to, to go off this summer, sometime around July or August. Uh, we're pushing back for what is possibly the last, uh, very likely the second to last time. So we're pushing back to December 1st, uh, roughly hoping that either we'd be ready to merge Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2 by then. If not, uh, we'll probably have a final pushback after that. The fourth EIP that's going in is EIP3529. What this does is it reduces the amount of refunds that you get from S-Store and self-destruct on the network. One of the reasons for this is a lot of the network usage right now is caused by um, gas token which is a token that will basically take up a ton of storage space on the network when gas is cheap. And then when gas is expensive, you can call it, it'll delete its storage, get a gas refund. And so you don't need to pay kind of the expensive gas price. And the problem with that is that it contributes to growing the Ethereum state, which is the set of all the data that we need to store on the blockchain. And as we grow that state, it becomes very hard to run nodes on the network. So we've been thinking about ways that we could kind of disincentivize people to have this behavior without breaking any existing smart contracts. So EIP 3529 is kind of a compromise uh, that we found that does a good job at removing incentives to to kind of hoard state, uh, but still not breaking any contracts. And then the last EIP is 3541. This is a very simple one, which basically makes it illegal to deploy a contract starting with a specific byte. And the reason for that is there's a group of people working on a lot of improvements to the EVM, uh, which want to use this byte as a way to kind of specify uh, some new functionality. Uh, That new functionality is a pretty big change. It was not ready to roll out right now in London, but by at least stopping contracts to use this byte uh, as they deploy, can kind of reserve it for future use for this upcoming EVM improvement.
1: Thank you, TIP. That's so much. I feel like because everyone's been focusing on EIP-1559, we haven't talked about all these other important issues such as gas tokens, gas refunds. We're talking about EVM improvements. This is a lot going into the London upgrade. And, you know, before it's too late, I think people should definitely be aware of these kinds of other changes coming to the Ethereum network that are going to be important down the line as well. For the very last few minutes of the show, I do want to drill down into a little segment called the Community Update, and that's basically not things related to the ETH market or ETH development roadmap, but just about the cohesiveness and decision-making process of the ETH community. So, Tim, you joined your role and took over from Hudson Jameson, who was the organizer of these all-core dev calls, officially in April or so. Tell me, was there anything new about Ethereum governance that you think has changed from the way that Hudson organized these calls and organized governance to the way that you're leading it now?
2: One thing I tried to do when I took over was not to change too much, right? You're already changing the person and it's hard when you, when you change a lot of variables at the same time, you don't know like which one had an impact. So, you know, at first I, I did want to kind of change as little as possible. One thing I did do though is before I started, so I started full-time in April, but I was actually working on this part-time since January. Uh, but when I, when I started, I met with all of the people who attend the calls frequently, so all the core developers, but there's also a bunch of other folks who, who come and basically ask them, you know, what do you like? What do you not like? What can we do better and whatnot? I think the biggest thing that, that got brought up and I'm still working on a way to deal with is there's two different purposes to these core developer calls and people sometimes expect one and we do the other and vice versa. Uh, but the first purpose is you know, to have technical discussions about the changes to the protocol. That's quite important. It's like the place where everybody's there at the same time. We can dive into details and really explore some potential changes. And then the second purpose is to make decisions about these changes. And, and this is the part that gets a bit more political. And sometimes people want to engage in technical discussions about something, but don't necessarily want to engage in the politics related to it. Or vice versa, you see people who come in who feel strongly about something, but don't necessarily want to engage with like the technical details. I've tried to make it clear you know, what's on the agenda, what decisions are we expecting to take. I think when there's complicated topics where there's like very nuanced opinion, one thing I've tried to do is to chat async with the different teams one-on-one before the call and to then be able to just like summarize where everybody's at it's extremely important to have these discussions or at least like a summary of them on the calls so people you know can voice their opinions or any concerns directly on the calls uh, because I do think it's a way where we provide transparency to the community. So that's, yeah,
1: let uh, me tell you, I mean, your tweet threads have saved me so much time. When I first started off as a journalist, I was sitting there for hours trying to figure out, what are they talking about? Because you're right, a lot of it is technical lingo, a lot of technical discussion and only like I'd say, Uh, 10 or 20% of it, depending on the week, depending on how close a hard fork is scheduled, that's when the decisions are going to get made. But having your summarized tweet threads means that for people like me, reporters, we just check your account. We just look at the notes that you have and we're like, oh, certain decisions were made, certain technical discussions were had. So they are (laughs) definitely really helpful, Tim. I I have to confess.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad they are.
1: So we are like definitely out of time, but I would just want to throw one last question to you and we can wrap up the show. In terms of governance and how decisions get made, a lot of it is organized and led by uh, individuals in the Ethereum Foundation bringing together developers, client teams, talking to different stakeholders, lots of outreach going on. Do you foresee a, a future where governance will be on chain will be decentralized to the point where it's not organized and led by a, a centralized foundation like the Ethereum Foundation. Do you foresee governance on Ethereum heading towards something that is on chain and more automated?
2: Quite right, The question to end with. So this is, you know, my personal opinion. Uh, folks within the EF or you know within Algoraves might disagree with this. I'm strongly opposed to on chain governance for projects like Ethereum, and the main reason why is I, I don't think there's a clear mapping between. You know, Ether holdings and the direction, like the value that you could add to the direction of the protocol. And, you know, like the obvious case there is like, you know, the core developers who've done the most for the protocol don't map to the largest ETH holders. Um, But there's also the case of like, you know, sometimes some random person comes in and like spots a bug or whatever, like right before an update is going to go live and they have like a huge impact. And the more formal your system is, the easier it is to capture, right? Like you've laid out the rules. Required to make a change. And when you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, like, yes, the systems are not very easy to understand from the outside. And it takes a lot of investment to try and figure out, like, how does it actually work? And how do you actually get a change through? My opinion is that's kind of a feature and not a bug because you want to make it hard for people to come in and change the Ethereum network, right? Like, you want them to have to invest a lot of time to build a lot of like social capital. And even if they do get a change in, by the way, so you still need all of the projects to adopt that change. Given the scale of ambition that Ethereum has, which is, you know, building kind of a digital nation state or like this large, like economy on-chain, I strongly favor kind of on-chain governance for say projects on Ethereum, because I think it's much easier to map, say your maker. You can have a pretty clear mission as maker to optimize for the MKR holders, Uniswap and Uni or whatnot. Like I think that the stakeholder alignment there is much, much cleaner than it is with a platform like Ethereum. So, you know, strongly support that. And I think it gives them also the ability to move much quicker than we can move at the protocol level for Ethereum. But again, I think that's a trade-off that's really worth making given the nature of what we're building.
1: Interesting. That was a very nuanced take. I liked it. I mean, difficult by design and not purposefully easy or clear on the steps in which you take to get a change through. A lot of it is dependent on, like you said, the social capital you have. And even then, I mean... It's about actively trying to gain the support of all these other decentralized applications and users. That definitely seems to be the path that Ethereum and Bitcoin have been on and it's continuing to work to some extent so far. And you are one of the people who are really at the head of synthesizing and, and bringing this all to light to people like me and other reporters here at CoinDesk. So thank you so much, Tim, for being on the show. Thank you for your comments and your thoughts. It really was a pleasure chatting with you.
2: Of course. Thank you for having me. This was great.
1: So for everybody who wants to follow up with Tim and what he's up to, get his tweet threads on what was talked about at an all-tour Devs call. We're going to be including a link to his Twitter handle in today's show notes. Next week on Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ben is back and we'll do another weekly roundup of your markets, tech, and community updates related to the evolution of the Ethereum blockchain. If you have any specific questions you would like answered on this podcast, you can connect with me on Twitter. My handle will also be in today's show notes. Please give me a shout out. I'd love to hear from you. Also give Tim a shout out. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you too. And also please subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Valid Points, for more ETH 2.0 news and development topics. You can subscribe to Valid Points by going to coindesk.com. See you next week for mapping out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye.
0: You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim and Tim Biko. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by CoinDesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk and much more. Get an up close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.